The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. If you are just joining us, you're visiting, or been out for a while, we're going through 1 Corinthians, and we are now in chapter 7. We're actually looking at verses 10 and 11. The goal today is to wrap up verses 10 and 11. Uh, Chapter 7 begins uh, a new subject that Paul is addressing in this letter that he wrote to a church that he planted and that he pastored for about a year and a half, was away for a couple of years. They started having problems. So he writes this letter as a pastor and also as an authoritative apostle to answer some of their specific questions they had and also to uh, rebuke them, really, for a lot of sins and compromise they had going on as newer and younger and kind of immature believers. We are in a section now where Paul's dealing with their view of morality, of singleness, of marriage, um, sexual intimacy. Most of them probably were pagan in their background before they got saved, so they weren't raised in the synagogue on an Old Testament ethic, which is a biblical ethic. And so there are many ways starting from scratch on how to view humanity themselves, their body, sexual intimacy, marriage, singleness. So many of them are quite confused because there's a cacophony of voices and sounds surrounding them in the world saying many different things that are not biblical about how they should live and think about relationships and even their very own identity. And so they're struggling as young Christians. And so they now are, we get to a section in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, where you can see that Paul is now uh, taking questions that they wrote him in a letter. Because they did. They, they wrote him a letter. We know this from 1 Corinthians 16, among other places, where there were people who came from Corinth 200 miles to Ephesus, where Paul was planning another church. And they said, hey, here's the church at Corinth. Paul, your old church. They got questions, and they gave him that letter, and he read through it. And some of those questions Paul uh, reiterates and actually incorporates in this letter. And he starts answering their questions pretty much from chapter 7 on through the rest of the book. And so the first question that the Corinthians asked the Apostle Paul it was verse 1. And we already looked at that, and Paul says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote in your letter that you sent to me, your question was, uh, or your statement was, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. In other words, they probably asked Paul, Paul, is is it good for a man not to touch a woman? Or maybe they asked something like, Paul, is it good to be single? Or maybe they asked, Paul, is it more spiritual to abstain from sexual intimacy? Or... Is it more spiritual and will I earn God's approval for being celibate now that I'm a Christian? Because in the Corinthians' day, in their world, because a lot of different influences, there were people teaching that ingrained in their worldview, saying it is more spiritual and you can please and appease the gods if you remain celibate or if you abstain. As a matter of fact, there was a Greek dualistic worldview at times that was being perpetuated by the Stoics and others that getting married actually was not a good thing. That was a bad thing. That was the lower road, not the higher road. And even worse was engaging in any kind of sexual intimacy. That was fleshly. That was earthy. That was physical. That was of the material. That was not good. The higher plane of spirituality is the immaterial world. So if you were involved in sexual relationships or a physical relationship, or if you were married, then you weren't as spiritual as you could be. So no doubt the Corinthians had been hearing this and were confused, and they needed Paul to straighten them out. And so that's the main question Paul 
is answering throughout the entire chapter 7. So let me summarize it this way. If you just keep that in mind, the main question Paul is answering for the Corinthian Christians throughout chapter 7 is this. Paul, is singleness or abstinence, physical sexual abstinence, good? Is singleness or abstinence good for a Christian? Or really what they meant was, is it spiritual or more spiritual? And then one by one, Paul answers that question. The way he answers it initially is, well, yes and no. Well, it it depends who you are, the context of your life, your status of life. So it's not just a simplistic either all yes or all no. It depends. And so for the next 40 plus verses, Paul is saying, if you're in this category, it's yes or no. If you're in this category, uh, it's yes or no. So that's where we are. So in answering this question, Paul, is singleness or abstinence good for the Christian? Paul answered that first in verses 2 through 6, and his answer was no. Singleness or slash abstinence is not good if you're married, that's his answer in verses 2 through 6. If you, are not, if you are married, it is not good to abstain. As a matter of fact, if you are married, it is bad to abstain. As a matter of fact, if you are married, it is sinful to abstain. As a matter of fact, if you are married, stop depriving one another. That is not more spiritual. That is wrong. So that was his answer. He was emphatic. Then next in addressing the question, Paul, is singleness or abstinence a good and spiritual thing? Then in verse 7, his answer was, well, before we go any further answering that question, you, Christian, need to figure out whether you have the gift of singleness or the the gift of marriage. That will help you the rest of the way. So figure that out. Do a self-diagnosis. How has God equipped you and wired your DNA? Do you have the gift of singleness or of marriage? And Paul gives a litmus test of how to figure that out. And we said that chapter 7, verse 7, is the lens by which to interpret all of chapter 7 so that you are not confused. Every Christian has either the gift of singleness or the gift of marriage. Uh, the next category of people and answering the question, Paul, is singleness or abstinence good for the Christian? In verse 8, Paul's answer was yes. In verse 8, yes. That is, if you're single and if you have the gift of singleness. And then his command is stay single. But you have a choice. You don't have to, but... It's an option. Then he answers the question in a different way in verse 9. Paul, is singleness or abstinence a good thing? And in verse 9 he said, no. No. Not if you're currently single and you don't have the gift of singleness. It is not good to try to stay single. You will subject yourself to sexual temptation. So his command at the end of that verse is, then get married. If you don't have the gift of singleness. He next answers that question in verse 10. Paul, is singleness or abstinence a good thing for the Christian? In verse 10 his answer is no. Abstinence or singleness is not a good thing if you are married to a fellow believer. And so his command there is, so you need to stay married. Stay married, don't get divorced. And then verse 11, which brings us up to where we are today. In answering the question, Paul, is singleness or abstinence a good thing? And in verse 11, essentially he says, yes. If you are currently single and if you have just recently divorced, a fellow Christian. If you're a Christian and you just got divorced from another Christian, yes, it is good to stay single. As a matter of fact, you are not allowed to marry somebody else if you divorced your Christian spouse and you are a Christian. So is it good to stay single? Yeah, it is. It's good to stay single and celibate if you divorced your Christian spouse. 
But we'll see in verse 11, he further says on that issue, if you are a Christian, you divorced your Christian spouse, stay single. You're not allowed to marry somebody else, but you may go back to your previous spouse, believer, and be reconciled and be married again. They have an option there. So that's where we are today. So, And he's going to do that all throughout this chapter, answering that exact same question. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians 7 now, verses 10 and 11. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. I'm not going to review for the most part. So we did record the sermon if you want to hear it. It laid the foundation for what I'm saying today. Very important stuff we said there. Uh, so try to make that available for you. So let's go ahead and look at the outline there on Christians and divorce. This is part two, verses 10 and 11. Last week we covered point one. Uh, not in detail. I want to highlight a couple of things in point one, and then we'll try to wrap it up with verses uh, or points two through five. Uh, in light of Paul's statement there in verses 10 and 11, I'll just read verses 10 and 11 in 1 Corinthians 7. As he goes to this demographic of people in the church, these are Christian couples, Christians who are married, wife is a believer, husband is a believer. But to the married, to married believers, I give instruction. Actually, literally, it's I give a command. This is not Paul's opinion. This is not a suggestion. This is not an option. This is binding, authoritative command and statement from God Almighty. And if you are a Christian, you must comply. If you do otherwise or violate it, that is sinful and that is dangerous. This is not Paul's opinion. So that's what he means by I give this order, I give this command, I give this instruction as an authoritative apostle, like he said in chapter 1, verse 1 and following. But to, the, but to married Christians in the church, I give this order, not I, but the Lord. We talked about this last week. Uh, this is not coming or originating from me. Jesus actually gave this command. We can read it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're actually going to look at it. The Lord taught this. The Lord said it. His apostles have preached on this. His apostles wrote it down. So Paul is actually basically paraphrasing or quoting from Jesus himself. And here was the injunction for married believers, that the wife should not leave her husband. The Christian wife is not allowed to divorce her Christian husband. That's it. It's pretty simple. And the compliment, verse 11. Oh, but if she does leave, if she does depart, if she does divorce her husband, she must remain unmarried. She can't get married to somebody else. Her other option is, middle of verse 11, or else be reconciled to her original believing husband. They can, that's her only option. Stay single or get reconciled with your old Christian husband that you're mad at for a while. And it's a reciprocal, mutual thing. Is at the end of verse 11, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So it's really simple. That's the command. If you are a Christian and you are married to another Christian, you are not to get divorced. To do so would be sinful and wrong. Now, let's go ahead and look at what, what Paul's talking about when he said, not I, but the Lord. Here's what Jesus taught. So I want to first look at, let's go to Mark 10. Then we'll actually go to Matthew 5, 32, and then we'll go to Matthew 19. And we've got to look at them in that order. Mark 10 and Mark 19 are parallel passages. They're talking about the same event. Uh, The wording's a wee bit different. Mark probably gives the more chronological sequence of how the conversation went. This is at the end of Jesus' ministry, the end of his three-year ministry. At the beginning of his ministry, we know in Matthew 5, 
that Jesus at one time was preaching to the crowds. And he did bring up the issue of divorce, and he basically said, don't get divorced. And then now three years later, at the end of his ministry, this question of divorce is brought up to him. As he's now not in Jerusalem, he's not in Galilee, he's in Perea, kind of in a Gentile region in the last months of his life. Uh, He's built up some enemies and hostilities over the course of three years, namely the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. They hate his guts. They want him dead. They've tried to kill him. They're jealous of him as the master, teacher, and rabbi. Crowds are following him. They despise Jesus. They're trying to publicly humiliate him and make him look like a buffoon or an idiot or somebody that doesn't know what he's talking about when it comes to the Old Testament scriptures. And so that's the context here in Mark 10 as Jesus is going out, doing miracles, teaching the multitudes. It's a mixed crowd. There are people who follow Jesus, like Jesus, don't know about Jesus, and people who hate his guts, which would be many of the Pharisees, are in that crowd. And here it is. Look at Mark chapter 10, verse 1. So getting up, uh, as he's moving about ministry, Galilee, and then moving from Galilee, he went from there to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, Perea, Crowds gathered around him. That's probably, I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds of people at this point. He's been doing miracles for three years all over Israel. Our English word crowd doesn't do it justice. A mass of people following him. They gathered around him. And according to his custom, because he was a teacher, he once more began to teach them. And as he began to teach, verse 2, some Pharisees, they hate him, they hate Jesus. They thought they were the experts on teaching the Old Testament. They thought they were the expert on the Mosaic law. What they said goes. So some Pharisees who hated Jesus came up to Jesus, get this, testing him. They want to publicly humiliate him. They crafted a question, no doubt, that they thought about for a long period of time, thinking there's no way to answer this. Regardless of how Jesus answers this, he will expose himself as a fool. And the crowds will reject him or Israel will reject him. There's no way you can possibly answer the question that they came up with. It was a trick question. So some Pharisees came up to Jesus purposely testing him. And they began to question him whether it was... Here's the, here's the test. They began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. Matthew says, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? For any reason. According to the rabbis of the day, it was totally legitimate of a Jewish man to divorce his wife for just about any reason. The the Jewish man, according to human tradition, not the Bible, had the authority to divorce his wife for frivolous things. Usually it was driven by lust for some other woman that he wanted. Uh, The Jewish women didn't have that right that was given by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So the Pharisees actually believe it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. That would be their answer. But earlier, three years earlier, Jesus said um, divorce is not an option. So he can't come out now and say, yeah, divorce is okay for any reason because then he'd contradict himself. Among other things, he'd ostracize many of the Jews if he said that. And verse 3, and Jesus answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? I love it when Jesus does that. Every time they get him in a corner and they've got a trick question, almost every time Jesus comes back with a question. That's a great way to get out of a hard question. You ask that person a question. Before I answer your question, you answer mine. Hey, that's not fair. 
Well, that's what Jesus did all the time. Because he knew it was an insincere question. It was an illegitimate question. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? What does Moses say? I love it. they got a trick question. They want to know something that has to do with relevance to life. And Jesus is basically saying, What does the Bible say? That's what, that's what the Christian answer and response should be to anything. Here's this hard scenario in life. Uh, what do we do about it? It's not theoretical. Well, what does the Bible say? We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. So no matter what's going on in your life, regardless of whatever question or trial you have in your life about relationships, our first thought and answer should be, what does the Bible say? Because we say we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, of God's work. It addresses everything in life. Jesus believed in the sufficiency of Scripture. He exemplifies it here. Jesus has a very specific passage in mind when he asked them, what did Moses command? This is kind of insulting, by the way, because the Pharisees were the master teachers of the Old Testament. Theoretically, they had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. And so Jesus is saying, oh, you want to know about divorce and what God has to say about divorce? What did Moses command? Now, we know that Jesus, his answer is he wants them to go back to the very beginning when God created marriage, Genesis 1 and 2. That's what, if you've got a question about marriage and divorce and you want to know the biblical view, you've got to go back to the beginning. And that would be Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. We know that is what Jesus is thinking. That is the context. That's actually the two verses that he's going to quote out of chapter 1 and chapter 2 in just a second. So he says, what did Moses command regarding marriage? Well, the Pharisees, the Bible experts they were, they, got, they gave the wrong answer to Jesus. Because in verse 4, uh, the Pharisees answered Jesus and said, well, Moses permitted to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So instead of going back to the very beginning about what God had to say about marriage, uh, the Pharisees think of the one obscure, difficult passage in Deuteronomy of an event that happened thousands of years later, after creation, after the fall, after a history and pattern of sinfulness in humanity has developed, after divorces have run amok. In Deuteronomy 24, God gives legislation to Moses, to the people of Israel, to legislate the preponderance of illegitimate divorces that were happening all over his community people, or his covenant people. And so the Pharisees pick out this passage in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. That's their answer. That's where they're quoting from. And so not only do they not get the correct answer, they don't go back to the beginning of the Bible about what Jesus or what God commanded about marriage. Uh, they're, saying, they're quoting from Deuteronomy 24, and they're misrepresenting Deuteronomy 24. They are botching it. And we'll look at Deuteronomy 24 in, a, in just a second. Because they turned Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 3 into a command. But when God gave it to Moses, it was not a command in Deuteronomy 24. The command comes in verse 4 of Deuteronomy 24. And the Pharisees mess it up. So let's go ahead and look at it. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is in the days of Moses. This is like 1400 B.C. So this is like 2,600 years after Genesis 1 and 2. Divorces were happening. Spouses were leaving their spouses for wrong, sinful, illegitimate reasons. God gives Israel, two million people at the time, probably two million Jews, the law so that they can conduct themselves orderly in a way that pleases God. 
And one thing that needed legislation and order were marriages and marriage relationships and how to put a stop to illegitimate divorces. So in Deuteronomy 24, that's exactly what's going on. And so God says, through Moses, by the way, God is speaking. And then verse uh, 1 of 24 in Deuteronomy says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes. So this guy doesn't like his wife anymore for whatever reason. That happens all the time, doesn't it? The wife finds no favor in the husband's eyes because he's found some indecency. And see, that's a purposefully generic term. It doesn't say adultery. It doesn't say some gross, heinous sin that warrants divorce. It's just some indecency. It's used in a previous chapter there in Deuteronomy to speak of uh, human feces on the ground. It's just, it's kind of indecent. It's kind of rude. It's kind of crude. But it's ill-defined. It's generic on purpose. And by the way, there's no command in verse 1. The Pharisees were trying to find a command in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3. There are no commands in verses 1, 2. God isn't commanding anything. God is just recognizing reality. You guys are having divorces right now. And so that's what he's saying. Uh, a guy gets married. He doesn't like his wife for whatever reason. And uh, for some uh, indecency, he finds in her. And so he writes her a uh, certificate of divorce. He just writes on a piece of paper and says, Here, wife go you're out of the house don't live with me we are done there's no legislation process you don't have to go to the courtroom you don't have to pay a divorce fee there was no process for that that's how simple it was to get a divorce the man could just say i'm done with you you're out of here here's your piece of paper bye bye done and god is just acknowledging that's what's going on it's happening it's bad we need to legislate this so the husband writes her a certificate of divorce. The Pharisees were trying to tell Jesus that, well, Moses commanded husbands to write divorce certificates for their wife. And Jesus is like, mm, no, you are misunderstanding that. Path. That is not what that passage is teaching. There is no command in verses 1 and 2. They were trying to turn this into a command. God was just recognizing reality. And so they're using this as their escape clause. Oh, here we go. Moses said we could give divorce certificates. Yippee, she burned the toast this morning. I'm out of here. I'm not exaggerating. That was their flippant, superficial view of marriage and divorce. Writes her a certificate of divorce, and he puts it in her hand, and he sends her out of the house. Notice it's one way. It's not uh, man and woman equal before God in terms of the authority and the rights that they have. It's only the male. It is the Jewish man who's dictating everything, has all the rights, and that imbalance and lack of harmony and unity and uh, dignity between man and woman was preserved from the days of Moses all the way up until the time of Jesus in the Jewish community so that in the days of Jesus the Jewish man had all rights and authority and the Jewish woman virtually had none and that's why it is so profound in 1 Corinthians 7 as Paul is addressing everything in the marriage relationship it is the husband and the wife it is the husband and the wife what is true of the husband is also true of the wife the authority of the wife is equal to the authority of the husband in terms of marriage relationships. Husband, you don't have authority over your own body. The wife does. That was profound. That just flew in the face of 2,000 years of human Jewish tradition. But it goes back, actually, to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, when God said, we will make man in our image, and in the image of God, he created man or mankind, male and female. See, humans... Men and women were created with equal dignity before God from the very beginning. 
And that was shrouded and twisted over the years by human tradition. And so verse 2, the man is initiating everything. And so the man boots her out of the house. She leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. So after a while, she just marries some other guy. Verse 3, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce, so the second husband divorces her and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife, Verse 4, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. In other words, uh, God doesn't like divorce. Uh, They get divorced for an illegitimate reason. The wife marries another guy because they got married. They actually committed adultery. And according to Leviticus 20.10, the husband and wife should have been executed through the death penalty by stoning then the wife would have been deceased. But that didn't happen. They didn't stone her for whatever reason. She gets divorced again. She comes back now to the original husband. They're not allowed to get married because she committed adultery. It's an illegitimate marriage. She should have been stoned to death. That's the point. And so the Pharisees in Mark 10 totally distort the meaning of this entire passage because they're trying to find a way out for easy divorce. So go back to Mark chapter 10 uh, with that as the background. Uh, well, what did Moses command? And they said, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Uh, Moses allowed divorce. It's in the Bible. Uh, verse 5, but Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment or this allowance is what it is really. No, actually, Moses didn't command divorces. Moses recognized the reality of divorces because of the hardness of the human heart. People are wicked, self-centered, and sinful, and inevitably there will be divorces. God knows that. And so God makes an allowance for it to manage and legislate it. Then he gets to the verse that he wanted to talk about. And that's verse 6. But instead of going to Deuteronomy 24 in some obscure passage, what you should have gone to is the back of the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. See, that's Genesis chapter 1. God made man and woman in the image of God with equal dignity before God as human beings. And then he goes to chapter 2 of Genesis, and he quotes chapter 2 in verse 7 of Mark 10. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one. Verse 9, Jesus gives his divine commentary. What therefore God has joined together and made one, let no man separate, let no man divorce. So you're asking me a question about divorce and what the Bible says? Then I'm going to go back to the beginning to God's ideal. God created marriage. Men and women are equal before God in terms of their dignity. The first wedding that happened was in Genesis chapter 2. God made woman for man to be the perfect complement. God performed the first wedding. Adam and Eve came together as husband and wife. When they did, they became one flesh before Almighty God. And because they were one, no one, no human institution is to separate, divide, or divorce that union. Because that would be wrong, that would be sinful, that would be undermining God's original plan. So, he t- and by the way, just side notes. When Jesus says, what did Moses command you? Jesus believed that Moses wrote Genesis. Jesus believed that Moses wrote Genesis chapter 1. Jesus believed that Moses wrote Genesis chapter 2. Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were real people, according to this passage. Jesus took the Genesis chapter 1 account and chapter 2 account, literal history at face value. Just a footnote. We need to keep that in mind. So Jesus' answer simply is, uh, 
when the Pharisees are asking, what do you think about divorce? Well, that's not God's ideal. God's ideal is that two come together and they're one flesh for life till death do they part. And every marriage that happens that's legitimate is actually an ordinance or creation of God. Whether you're a Christian or not, when you get married, if two unbelievers get married, that's a marriage before Almighty God. I have relatives who are not believers who've been married for 50 plus years faithfully to one another. That is a legitimate, honorable marriage. Because marriage, the institution, and every marriage that takes place is legitimate is an act of God. So Jesus says, don't, don't undermine it. So he rebukes and exposes the Pharisees for what they are. Now, we must go to Matthew chapter 5.32 and chapter 19 because... Jesus does give an, ex- an exception because Mark makes it sound like no divorce under any circumstances ever. But Matthew 5.32, Matthew 19 show us that Jesus actually gave an exception, that there, were, there was a time where divorce would be allowed by God and would be okay or legitimate, even though it grieved God's heart. Uh, if you look at Matthew chapter 5.31, he says... Um, uh, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's the Pharisees' twisted version of Deuteronomy 24. In other words, the Pharisees allowed for divorce for any cause. Verse 32, but Jesus says, but I say to you. What the Bible really says is that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or sexual immorality or fornication, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So I want to point out the exception clause in verse 32. Jesus said, you shouldn't get divorced, but if adultery happens, then there is a case for divorce. That's an an allowance, an exception. So if you're married and your spouse commits adultery against you and maybe even does it repeatedly, then there is warrant and an allowance by God to get divorced. I'm not going to go there, but in Matthew 19, Jesus says it again. The exception clause. So going back to 1 Corinthians 7, uh, looking at what the Apostle Paul says in verse 10, uh, but to married believers, I give instruction, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Jesus said, don't get divorced. That's what he said in Mark 10. That's what he said in Matthew 5. That's what he said in Matthew 19. But in context, taking all the verses together, we do know Jesus said, but if adultery is involved, then you've got a different issue to consider. It might warrant a divorce. And the way it worked out in the Old Testament, if you uh, committed adultery against your spouse, I already said it, Leviticus 20.10 said that whoever committed adultery actually was to be tried and then executed and given the death penalty. So then that the spouse or the two people that committed adultery, they are dead. And then according to the Bible, when your spouse dies, you are free to remarry. That's Romans chapter 7, verses 1 and following. So when a death takes place, you're free to marry. So right now, if you're married and your spouse dies, then you're free to remarry. That's a liberty that God has given people. Carried over into the New Testament, if uh, somebody commits adultery, they deserve the death penalty. We don't implement the death penalty here in America for adultery. In some countries today, they do, actually. Historically, in America, they did. In the Bible, that's what it says. If you commit adultery, you deserve to die. And we said last week, if you commit a sin, you deserve to die. 
So <laughs> we're all in the same boat. We should all be dead. We shouldn't be having church together today. That's the grace of God. That's the gospel, the good news. Uh, an adulterer deserves to die, and that's why Jesus came and committed no sin and was the God-man and went up on the cross and said, sinners deserve to die, but Lord, Father, kill me, punish me, that I might die the death that sinners deserve so that if they believe in me, they won't have to be succumbed to that death or that execution of the death penalty. I will die the death as their substitute as a result. That's what Jesus did. That's what His death meant. He died as a substitute for sinners so that today, your sin that condemns you, your sin, the sin that condemns me, that warrants the death penalty is absorbed in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have forgiveness before Almighty God. That is the good news of the gospel. That's the meaning of Christ's death. And so that's, that would be the answer today is, well, why aren't we executing in the church adulterers today? Oh, you mean Christians who commit adultery? Because do you think Christians commit adultery? I would say as a pastor, just as a person, yeah, absolutely. Happens all the time. Well, why, aren't, why isn't the church out with an, ex, uh, an inquisition and executing all the adulterers in the church? Well, there's a couple of reasons. And the main reason is because, well, they do deserve to die. They should be executed. But Jesus died in their place. He got executed for them. He subjected himself to the death penalty they deserved. Isn't that cool? He died in their place. So justice has been served. God's wrath has been appeased. Because Almighty Jesus Christ, God in a body, did that for them. So that's why we're not executing and killing sinners today. That's why Jesus said, go out and give the gospel the good news. God is holy, yes. God hates sin, yes. Every sinner deserves to die, yes. Every sin warrants death, yes. But the story doesn't end there. It's good news we preach. The gospel, the good news, that Jesus died on behalf of sinners so they don't have to die the death they deserve. And they can have all of their sins forgiven. It's amazing. But that's the heart of Christianity. The gospel of grace. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 7. Um, but to the married, married believers, uh, this order, don't divorce your believing spouse. Uh, but if you do get divorced, because it happens, I've seen, I know personally Christian husband, Christian wife, who divorced each other. I have actually sat in a counseling chair over the years, over the last 25 years, where I counseled a Christian couple more than once. You guys are talking about divorce. Are you a Christian? Yes. Are you a Christian? Yes. Do you think your spouse is a Christian? Yes. And you guys want to get divorced? Yes. Do you realize that the Bible says you're not allowed to get divorced? Yes, I don't care. Whoa. That sounds like hardness of heart. That is exactly what Jesus defined it as, hardness of heart. And sadly, I've seen it in churches. You give them counsel, you pray, you read the scriptures, and then you hear, oh, that couple got divorced. Wow, sad, heartbreaking. Sometimes God works on their heart, brings them to, and I've also seen that happen. That's the good news. Christian couple, usually it's not a Christian couple that comes and says they want to get divorced. It's one of the two who comes and says, I want to, I want to divorce my husband or I want to divorce my wife. They come tattling on their Christian spouse. Uh, I am not going to counsel you and talk to you without your hubby or your wife. Sorry. I'm not going to let you gossip behind the back of your spouse that you're one flesh with. Sorry. So let's the three of us get together and let's talk. Let's search the scriptures together. This, and I'm talking about believers, okay? Believing husband, believing wife. And I have seen uh, some get softened 
and forgive each other. And years later, they're still married and their marriage is growing and thriving. Uh, He goes on in verse 11. So divorce is a reality. It happens between married believers. Paul knows that even in his day. He says, nevertheless, if you violate this command and you sin and you do divorce your believing spouse, man, then you've got to remain unmarried. If you left your spouse, you can't go uh, hunting after somebody else to marry. You can't do that as a Christian. You need to remain single for the rest of your life. Unless, of course, uh, God allows you to be reconciled to your original believing spouse. And that's the end of verse 11. Or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife either. And if they do get divorced, they can only reconcile with one another. Let's go back to your handout. I want to just fill in those blanks there. Uh, Last week we said, number one, believers must not divorce um, because Jesus said so. The exception that we just read is pornea or immorality, usually adultery. Uh, Number two, we saw that uh, believers do divorce because of unforgiveness. Really, I'm I'm calling it unforgiveness. Jesus called it hardness of heart. But I, I was thinking about, wow, the first time I think somebody confided me as a pastor was in 1989 when I was in seminary. And a couple sharing with me i think it was the husband that they were they were both believers and they wanted one of them wanted to divorce and get out of it and and so uh over almost 25 years of seeing this time and time and time and time and time and time again of married couples considering divorce one of them is angry at their spouse they're mad at each other there's unforgiveness bitterness hardness of heart and you have to work through it with them pray with them counsel hopefully they make the right decision in the end but i've seen a lot of hardness of heart a lot of bitterness a lot of unforgiveness it's sad it's real though but in the end, it, it always came down to unforgiveness. You, you trace it back. Well, wow, you just walked out on your, your husband or your wife. Really? Why is that? Because he did this. And then you trace it all the way back. And it usually comes back to unforgiveness over one issue or several little issues. Little foxes. That's why I say the ultimate bottom line when it comes to divorce is usually unforgiveness on the part of one person at least. Sometimes a spouse is willing to forgive, and the other says, no way. Jesus called it hardness of heart. Number three, if believers divorce, there are only two options, says Paul. A, you need to stay unmarried. Stay single. So if you're a Christian and you're thinking, I'm going to divorce my Christian spouse, and I think the grass is greener over there, and there's this woman that will really treat me nice. And she'll really listen to what I have to say. And she'll really honor and respect me. And she won't be so critical of me. And she'll actually believe in me. And she'll be, and on and on and on. Well, sorry, that's not an option for you, Christian. The only option is B. You divorce your believing spouse, you need to be reconciled to the original spouse. Forgive like Jesus forgave. I remember when I was at the master's college, I was a senior I was engaged to some cute blonde girl from California. And we were engaged. Debbie, that would be my wife. Um, she, oh, we took a class together at the Master's College. It was an elective, two units. And it was, it was just called Marriage and Family. It was 18 weeks long, and the teacher was Mrs. Oda Kirken, professor there, and her brother. It was, uh, they were both married to their spouses, but they were brother and sister, and they were son and daughter of one of my favorite professors at the college and they were teaching this class on marriage and family it was great 18 weeks homework reading books writing papers class discussion uh susan oderkirk and the professor she said one thing that i've 
would never forget. It, it was stunning when I heard it that day. And then I've used it in, I think, just about every premarital counseling I've ever done with every Christian couple that I've worked with to get married. It's even on my one-page survey that I usually give to married couple, people who are engaged and want to get married. One of the questions is, to these Christian people who want to get married and are engaged, one of the questions is, under what conditions would you divorce your spouse? Okay, now these are two Christians. The answer I am looking for is, under no conditions am I going to divorce my spouse. Really, because that's the biblical ideal. Because even if your Christian spouse commits adultery against you, which according to Jesus is an allowance for divorce, since both of you are Christians and Jesus has saved you from all of your sins that were horrific against a holy God, it is possible for a Christian spouse to forgive their spouse for horrific sins committed against them, even adultery. It is possible. It is only supernaturally possible through the grace of God, though. So it is an option. You don't have to divorce just because there's adultery. You can actually take the higher road, be like Christ more than ever, and actually forgive your spouse who committed adultery against you. And that's what the book of Hosea is all about in the Old Testament. For 14 chapters, Almighty Holy God is married to Israel. Israel sins against God, Yahweh. Time and time again, spiritual adultery over and over and over. And instead of divorcing her permanently, God the Father takes her back. Keeps taking her back and keeps on forgiving. That's the point of the book of Hosea. That is supernatural forgiving love. Humans don't have that capability. Only if you are a born-again Christian with the Spirit of God living in you as you walk in the power of the Spirit are you supernaturally able to even conceive of that kind of forgiveness. And you know what? I have seen it happen as a pastor. It's amazing. I have counseled a married couple. One committed gross adultery. Should have been executed. The believing spouse was knew what the Bible said, knew the sins they had been forgiven of, and they actually welcomed their repentant, sinning spouse back. To this day probably more than 10 years later, they are still married. It is absolutely amazing. To this day, almost 10 years later, their marriage and friendship is growing and thriving. It's beyond human comprehension. It's a supernatural act of God. That is the forgiveness of Almighty God. So anyway, going back to Susan Odekirk in my class, here's the statement she made. I left you hanging, sorry. Uh, She said to all of us who are in this marriage class, when you get married, do not ever threaten your spouse with divorce. And I was like, whoa. It was stunning. It was shocking. Uh, I was alarmed because I thought that's basic. Why would you do that as a Christian to your Christian spouse? Seriously? I mean, it was like, why are we wasting our time talking about this? The Bible's clear. And then it just sunk in my brain and then, I go into seminary and become a pastor and serve at certain capacities, and I look back over 20-some-odd years, and I am absolutely amazed and uh, shocked of how many times I have been in counseling sessions or at churches where a Christian spouse was threatening divorce to me against their Christian spouse in a fit of anger, in a fit of rage, in a fit of disappointment, in a fit of emotion, in a fit of whatever. 
over the most superficial, shallow, unbiblical reasons imaginable. I've seen it time and time and time again. And she just said, don't ever threaten your spouse with divorce. Don't do that. Words are powerful. They are destructive. You will undermine your friendship. You will undermine your trust. Uh, It'll take a long time to overcome. Do not do that. Great counsel. She knew what she was talking about. Years go by, uh, church after church after church, Christian after Christian after Christian after Christian. I, I keep hearing this. I've had plenty of husbands come to me and say, uh, get my advice, and in the end saying, I want to divorce my wife. Well, are you a Christian? Yeah. Is she a Christian? Yeah. Then what's your biblical reason for divorce? Um, oh, well, you've got to have a biblical reason? Yeah, actually you do. Has she committed adultery? Uh, no. Oh. Has she deserted you? No. Okay, then you can't get divorced. That's what the Bible says. I've had some heed that counsel. I've had some defy that counsel. And I've had uh, wives do the same, Christian wives. Um, I'm sick of my husband. I want a divorce. Really? What's your biblical reason for wanting to divorce your husband? When did he commit adultery? Well, he, he hasn't. Oh, okay, so he's deserted you apparently. Well, no, he hasn't. Then you can't get divorced. Are you a Christian? Yes. Is he a Christian? Yes. Then you can't get divorced. Um, And sometimes that counsel is heeded, and sometimes it's not, sadly. Um, So this is getting down to real life. Here are are reasons that I have been given, or that I have heard, or that I've actually read in books. Of These are unbiblical reasons of why people want to divorce their Christian spouse. First, I'll start with the ladies. Here's reasons women literally have given. And these are uh, routine when they are given. I want to divorce my husband. Why? Because he's a jerk. Okay, that is not a biblical reason. Now, Howard Hendricks uh, was one of my favorite all-time Bible teachers and speakers. He was at Dallas Seminary for about 50 years. And he worked with family. He's also a pastor of family ministry. So he dealt with divorce all the time. And he, was, he had a classic response to this because he dealt with women, all the Christian women all the time, who said, I want to divorce my husband because he's a jerk. And Howard Hendricks would always say, well, what kind of a woman would marry a jerk? And it's like, whoa, Howard. And then he'd tell the wife, you're not very discerning, are you? Uh, you're, a, you're, you're kind of a jerk ass, then I guess. That makes you birds of a feather flock together. You're a perfect compliment. That's how Howard would deal with it. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but that's really a, a stated reason. Or the wife will say, well, we're different. Or we think differently. Yeah, I thought that's why you got married. God made us different. That's not a reason for divorce. Uh, he's mean. Uh, He talks harshly to me. Or here's another common one. He's not the spiritual leader that he needs to be. I'm thinking, well, wow, neither am I. I don't think I know a husband that is. Amen. Yeah, see? Amen. Where's the grace of God? I mean, we have the impossible standard in the Bible. For the women, it just says in Ephesians and Colossians, wives, respect and honor your husband. And then for the guys, it's like, husbands, love your wife the way Jesus loved the church. It's like, yeah, right. That is impossible. It's a supernatural, impossible standard from a human point of view. But anyway, uh, that's not a legitimate reason to divorce your wife or threaten divorce. Or or I've heard wives say, well, he's changed over the years. He's changed. I've heard wives say, I want a divorce because he doesn't change. (laughs) Like, well, well, whoa, I'm confused. You want it both ways. Uh, I've heard this profound reason. I've had it. I'm tired of it. I'm miserable. That's not a reason for divorce. It's not a reason for threatening divorce. He's emotionally abusive, whatever that means. He's emotionally abusive, whatever that means. 
Emotionally abusive? What, what does that mean? Well, he yells at me. Oh, do you ever yell at him? Yeah, well, sh- 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 yeah you do. Uh, we have irreconcilable differences. That's the number one reason for Christians getting divorced today in America. It's not in the Bible. It came from communism. We talked about that last week. Uh, he's irresponsible. That's not a biblical reason for divorce. I feel trapped. It's not legit. I feel hampered. I feel, I feel, I feel. You're living life on your emotions and not on the Word of God. Stop! I don't feel loved. You don't feel loved as a wife? Okay, then I I always have follow-up questions for the wife. I I mean, I've heard this repeatedly for 20 years. It doesn't surprise me anymore. So when the Christian wife says these things, oh, here's one that I've heard. I've heard men and women say this. God wants me to get divorced. No, he doesn't. That's probably the worst reason given. So here's a follow-up questions I have for the wife, usually, if she's considering divorcing her husband, uh, especially when she says things like, I don't feel loved, okay? Um, is he a Christian? She says, yes. Okay, is he a good provider? She says, yes. Wow, he's providing for you because he loves you and takes his role seriously. That's like responsibility number one of a husband is to be a loving provider, Maybe you don't feel love, but you should appreciate the bacon on the table if he's bringing it home. Question number three to the Christian wife. Is he good with the kids? Well, yes. They like their daddy. Wow. Uh, question number four. Is he good to your parents, the in-laws? That would take a supernatural act of God. Yes. Well, yeah, actually, he te- treats my parents with respect. Does he go to church? Well, yes. Is he involved in a ministry at the church? Yes. Is he a basically good and decent citizen? Well, yes. Does he ever hit you and physically abuse you? Well, no. Is the Bible the ultimate authority in your life? Uh, um, yes. Did, when you made your vows when you got married, did you say, in good times and in bad? Well, yes. Well, then it's self-evident. You have absolutely no reason to get divorced. And your problem is unforgiveness and a bitter heart. And a lack of appreciation, actually. And you have a speck or a two-by-four or a telephone pole stuck in your eye. And I could also say the, re- the same thing about guy- men that I have counseled. Husbands who want to divorce their Christian wives. And, and there's a pattern there with the men, as there is with the women. It's kind of interesting how the patterns are about, they're the same for most women I talk to and most men. Here's the pattern for the men. Um, you want to divorce your wife? Really? Why? Well, she's a nag. She's always critical of me. She's, she never appreciates anything. Really? You want to divorce for that? Um, she doesn't appreciate anything I do. I can't satisfy her. I'm sick of the drama. I think these are like real-life questions or statements I've heard over the years. Now, in ju- this is kind of interesting. In just about when I worked with these guys, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, sometimes months and months and months and months, and they allowed me to and be intrusive in their life and get to the root uh, of the problem, inevitably, with the men, this was not true with the women. With the men, when I scratched beneath the surface, uh, a majority of the men actually were already contemplating another partner or woman. They either had one already, they were talking with one already, 
or they were thinking about con- uh, candidates already. I was like, whoa. When I got there, I said, that, that's adultery. Well, no, we have, I haven't touched her. Well, let's go to Matthew 5 and let's see what Jesus had to say about adultery. You have violated the covenant relationship with your wife of being a one-woman man solely to her. And you've given your affections to another woman. And I've actually confronted some men on that and actually have had a high success rate because as believers, they were convicted. They repented. They went back soft to their wives. And I've seen marriages and friendships restored. It's amazing. That's what's amazing. You do this long enough over the years, over decades, you see God do great things. And you are reminded again, man, His Word is true. His Word heals. His Word is powerful. The, the women, typically, they're just kind of mad and in uh, running by emotions and hormones or whatever it is. And usually petty, very petty issues. And then the men are just like, they've got other issues that are serious and problematic. And we are all equally guilty. And we all fall under the verdict of Jesus. It is because your hardness of heart is because of the hardness of my heart. Don't ever forget the statement when Jesus said to his believing disciples, you are evil. Can you imagine? They were falling. They've given their life to Jesus. He turns around and says, you are evil. Because he knew their heart. Jesus could say the same thing about you and about me. Even if we're believers. Because sin lives in us. It is dangerous. It is deceptive. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right? And we need the gospel. We need the grace of God. We need his spirit. We need other believers to hold us accountable. We need his word to continually remind us and protect us. We need the grace of God. We need the church. Go back to 1 Corinthians and we'll just wrap it up. And uh, when I was talking about uh, 3B, forgive your spouse. Be like Christ. Number four, the origin of marriage problems is the fall or the curse. And actually, we will pick that up and wrap it up next time because it is so vitally important. Because that number four is really the answer. Why, why do husbands and wives fight? Why do we get mad at each other? Why are there separations? Why are there divorces? How come we can't get along? And a lot of times we are so myopic we think it's just our marriage relationship. Why can't we be like them, that other Christian couple at the church? And I always like to say to whoever it is, well, you don't live with those people. I guarantee you live there a couple months, you realize, uh, hey, they're as bad as, hey, they're worse than we are. That'll make you feel good. But this is incredibly important because where we live, and so we can't skip it, we'll go, And we'll look at that next time. And then we'll end with the good news, the glorious resolution and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. With that, let's go ahead and pray and we'll go to lunch. Father, thank you for this day and for the opportunity to interact and fellowship with the believers, the saints in your church. Thank you for the truth of your word. God, I thank you that it is sufficient. As we go through it, God, there are verses we are so encouraged by and blessed by and wonderful promises and affirming truths, and then there are verses like this that really challenge us, um, that convict us, that make us feel bad, that remind us that we are sinful. Only you, God, are good. Only you are holy. Only you are sinless. And we need to recognize that and welcome that and celebrate that great truth. And you've adopted us into your family and given us a very nature just like yours because of our position and the 
Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for your death and resurrection on behalf of sinners and the forgiveness of sin we have for making us white as snow and for casting all of our sins as far as the east is from the west and that our security is in you, our future is with you, our eternity is with you. Thank you so much. We love you for that. We celebrate that. We commit it all to you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.